Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. I'm Tyler Orton and joining with me today is my colleague Patrick Blunner. Patrick, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It's just me today, hey? Just you today. No Uh, Haley. No Haley, but uh, she'll be back in a couple weeks. For now, uh, why don't we start off our conversation with the Globe Forum, which hit Vancouver last week. It comes to town every two years. Had the opportunity to spend a couple days there uh, hunting for some pretty cool stories. And I think maybe the first one, everybody, I encourage you to pick up this week's edition of the newspaper because we do actually go quite big. We had a number of reporters down there. And I got the opportunity to sit and, and observe a Lyft executive pitch this whole idea of abandoning car ownership here in Vancouver. Really, the idea is why do you need to own a car if you can simply order one at your convenience all the time, take you where you need to go, and then drop it off. Uh, Patrick, you recently got back into car ownership, though. But tell me about your idea. Let's say we were in a jurisdiction that would facilitate this. What would you be down for with regards to the future of car, car ownership? Yeah, I think I might be a bit of an outlier because I'm my parents live in Kamloops. So if I want to go visit them, which I do sort of on occasion, I have to drive. I don't want to take the Greyhound. I can't take a train. I can't fly. I have to drive. So I have to basically own a car. And I, I don't know how many other people sort of have that issue. I think they're trying to base it on the fact that if you live and work and play in Vancouver and you have family here... The only time you're going to leave the area is when you're going to get on a plane or train and head somewhere else. But I think there's a decent segment of the population that has family in outlying areas, like even Victoria. I don't know how not owning a car would work if you had to travel to Victoria or if you had to travel to Kelowna on a regular basis. What would this executive, and and this is Tim Burr, uh, he was talking about the, the fact that very much like we've seen say Netflix changed the way that we view movies. You know, we used to go uh, buy DVDs or, or go to the video store and take out physical copies for an extended period. Well, that's kind of been thrown out the window with regards to the Netflix streaming model where you don't actually possess it. You just have it for a short period of time and then you give it back up. And it's not a perfect analogy there, but yeah. it is kind of a, a fundamental change in the way that we view car ownership and I, I, there, there's going to be outliers like, like you said in, in which certain situations aren't going to be the, e- the easiest but why invest um, way more and say the cost of maintaining a vehicle the insurance costs etc when it would be simply just cheaper for you to go with one of these ride handling services I think ultimately no matter maybe some of the inconveniences that would come from like long distance travel, which I think could actually be addressed quite easily. Um, I think if the price is right, people would just say, yeah, I'll, I will give up car ownership. It makes sense. Yeah. I think if the, if the bottom line is right, then you, you're definitely going to consider it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I think the other part is that there's a segment of the population that they they take pride in car ownership. They like having a car. They oh, yeah. Like, they like having a certain type of car. Um, so I don't know if you're going to weed those people out. I think they're trying to target a very specific demographic. And I don't know why. But, but, but I, it's the same sort of people that still buy vinyl records, you know. Which yes. It, yeah, it yeah, boosts yeah. in popularity, but it's still a very much a niche market, I would say. Yeah, definitely. 
I think the other thing that, that I always kind of go back to is it, there there might be a bit of an analogy with sort of renting and buying a house. I mean, you're you're choosing basically six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. They've done studies that say, you know, if you were to rent and invest in the stock market as opposed to buying a house and paying a mortgage, it's going to come out on the same. So it's whether or not you want that convenience or that flexibility. It's whether or not you are willing. Like I've been with friends and we've been downtown. We've been trying to get downtown, trying to get into um, you know, an Evo. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes we're walking around six or seven blocks for 45 minutes. The app doesn't work. The car's not there. I mean, if you've got to get somewhere and get to work at a certain time, um, that's not very reliable. And I, I'm sure that they can work out a lot of those kinks. But what, what, what say a company like Lyft and what uh, the director of policy, Tim Burr, was saying there, though, is if you've got autonomous vehicles, you don't even have to worry about drivers. All you have to do is push a button and a fleet of vehicles will be able to take people to and from areas. The other thing is it's not just individuals uh, hopping into these rides. There will be a lot of carpooling for even lower cost of these travels. So it's just it's a fundamental change yeah. as to the way that we think of, you know, I guess, transportation within the region. And this is also going to spread to buses as well. We're going to have, I mean, I think the days of the bus driver are numbered as well as more driverless vehicles, yeah. uh, you know, kind of explode onto the scene. So I look, I more, I go into more depth in this in the latest edition of the newspaper. I'd encourage everybody to uh, pick up a copy, not only because it's just my story, but um, there are some interesting... <laughs> it is because it's your story. Well, we'll just yeah. say it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we do have insights from other people throughout the transportation industry weighing in on this particular issue here. Patrick, I understand you are also at Globe. I'm not uh, 100% certain your story's not run yet. I don't necessarily want to spoil it, but what was your overall takeaway from your experience at Globe, the vibe that you got about uh, a lot of people, and I should have spelled this out at the beginning, but it is North America's largest summit dedicated to a sustainable economy focused mm-hmm. a lot and say clean energy alternatives. Um, I, I attended the panel on climate risk and investment, and I thought it was fascinating because what they were talking about is talking about how the markets and capitalism are starting to respond to climate change. And it's gone from being a theory to something that they're now having to put into practice. Um, they're now having to incorporate into risk management departments. Um, investors are getting scared about it. Uh, certain products in certain areas around the world are having to deal with it sort of on a actual basis. So I think it, it was fascinating for me to see the uh, private market start to really sort of grasp this. And I think they're starting to grasp it as not this sort of hyper object that, okay, well, maybe in 20 years we'll recycle a bit more and figure this out. Like the corporate world has started to embrace the fact that they need to solve this problem. And I think that's good because the government governments can't do this alone. You need the private sector to basically take the reins on this. Well, the private sector is actually recognizing that there are economic disadvantages to not acknowledging this particular issue. So why not get ahead of yeah. the game here, right? Well, and there's also economic benefit too. I think the other thing that they're starting to see listening to the panel is that there's money to be made um, in solving climate change and in helping subvert climate change. So that's the other thing. Like if you start waving money in front of massive companies and agile investors, you look at how clean energy has taken off. Um, that's, that's, I think, could possibly be the turning point is that having the private sector come fully on board to 
help governments and help people by basically doing what bureaucracy can do is moving a lot quicker. So I think you brought up a good point uh, during the opening plenary session. We had the former president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon. He was speaking, and he said, "Look, people have been hearing thirty years about you know why you know, climate change is a bad thing, why it's a scary thing. We need to talk more about the benefits that we get." out of solving this issue as opposed to just the negatives that we're experiencing right now that'll move more people to action yeah i think it's it'll be fascinating to see how the private and public sector comes together over the next couple decades and whether or not they can sort of join forces to sort of solve this i think that's the that's the million dollar question and quite possibly the question of our species maybe i don't know very possible well uh patrick great having you on the show i want to thank you for joining us today thanks for having me but uh stay with us uh we're going to take a short break but first this podcast is brought to you by manning elliott accountants and business advisors manning elliott has been providing expert accounting assurance business advisory tax and valuation services to businesses in the lower mainland and fraser valley since 1952 if you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600 at 604-714-3600. Also, check them out on their website at manningelliott.ca. Welcome back. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We are the daily business news program from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. We're here at the Globe Forum 2018 in Vancouver. It's the largest summit in North America dedicated to an economy focused on sustainability, which means a lot of cool speakers and panelists focusing on anything from innovations to more access to capital with regards to a new kind of, uh, let's say, carbon neutral, carbon light economy that is emerging here, not just in Canada, but across the globe. Hence, I guess, why they call the Globe Forum. But with me today is Jeff Holmes. He is Manager of Business Development at Carbon Engineering, a very kind of cool company doing interesting things, very cool innovations. Jeff, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. My pleasure, Tyler. Thanks thanks for having me. Carbon Engineering, you guys are based in Squamish, right? That's it. Yeah, we were founded in Calgary about uh, nine years ago now, and since relocated to Squamish, have a big presence in Vancouver here, so we're proud to be part of this Canadian ecosystem. And, and let's talk a little bit about that because, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll start off with what is it that you guys are up to? What is, because I'm not sure if everybody's super familiar with carbon capture, but what is ultimately the goal of the technologies that you guys are developing? Yeah, so we're, we're a technology proponent and for our whole lifetime, we've been focused on enabling this concept that we call direct air capture. Uh, so your listeners might have heard of carbon capture before that traditionally refers to scrubbing CO2 out of a flue stack at a power plant or a big industrial facility or something like that so that it can be put underground and doesn't enter the atmosphere and contribute to climate change. Um, The catch is that not all of our emissions come out of flue stacks. There's a lot that come out of tailpipes or even from agriculture or land use change or, or all these different vectors that don't all necessarily have solutions at source. And so we've come up with a concept and have been developing since inception this concept called direct air capture. And really that involves processing ambient air itself and removing the CO2 from it uh, and then processing and purifying that CO2 so that we could either store it underground or use it for other things. So what would be other uses of this CO2? Well, so the big one we're focused on now is um, it's a nifty thing that we call air to fuels. 
Um, so one of the really interesting things you can do with atmospheric CO2 once you've got it, once you've purified it, is you can combine that CO2 with hydrogen and you can directly synthesize liquid fuels like those that go into our gas tanks today, so gasoline and diesel. Uh, and what this allows us to do is, is combine hydrogen that's made from clean electricity. So, you know, here in BC, we could do it off the hydro grid if we wanted. In other locations, we could do it from cheap renewables like solar and wind. And then we take that hydrogen, CO2, like I said, we make them into fuels that are compatible with all of our infrastructure and engines today. Um, and it's basically another way of getting renewable energy into the transport sector and trying to dip- displace some of the crude oil that we, we currently use. So then tell me a little bit about, I, I can wrap my head around why maybe you guys started in Calgary. What brought you from Alberta over to Squamish eventually? A combination of things. There's, there's a really dynamic ecosystem on the West Coast around uh, clean energy and innovation. Um, there's been a lot of expertise in hydrogen and fuel cells here for years. Uh, lots of good companies to, to partner with. Um, we, we have some open research programs with the UBC. And in Squamish, we actually found a very welcoming community and home. And um, importantly, some, some underutilized industrial land where we were able to go and locate and take advantage of buildings and concrete pads and footings that were already there to put our pilot plant on and and save us having to build all that from scratch. And and then you may expose my ignorance here about how the technology works, but I also know that, you know, we see Squamish LNG efforts going forward. Is there any possibility there could be kind of uh, some, I don't know, synergy going on between what you guys are doing and any possible, you know, LNG projects as well about how those technologies could go together? Um, Relatively little, I think. We're, We're really kind of pursuing a wholly different technology and and it would be for a very different market so um yeah coincidental that we're both there but not really any linkage fair enough but so let's tell, talk a little bit about this market that you guys are pursuing where do you see kind of mar- market opportunities here um so it probably doesn't come as any surprise to the astute listener that you know if we're going to make fuels from CO2 that we've captured from the air and and from hydrogen that we've produced using clean electricity, at present time, it costs more to do that than to produce fuels by refining crude oil that that flows out of the ground. Um, So really what we have to do is we have to go to markets that uh, preferentially prefer those those fuels or place a financial incentive on low-carbon fuels, fuels that don't emit fossil carbon in the atmosphere and contribute climate change or fuels that are cleaner burning and so have a better uh, less of an impact on on air quality and not coincidentally there there is a market like that in in british columbia uh so the british government of british columbia has been running a giant experiment that a lot of people know very little about uh for several years now with their implemented low carbon fuel program um, that allows fuels that have a very low life cycle carbon intensity uh, to generate credits and fuels that have high carbon intensity to generate deficits. And then all the fuel producers and importers in the province are required to balance credits and deficits each year, making the credits worth something in money. 
Um, this is a program that has already reduced uh, emissions from the BC transport sector. It's done so with very, very uh, negligible costs to the end user. Um, so BC is home to a really cool transportation success story. And in fact, it's one that's sort of following in the footsteps of a, of a much bigger program that's been running in California as well. Do you see possible market opportunity in a jurisdiction like California too? Just yeah, absolutely, of that? both. Yeah, so these are the kind of markets that we need uh, to to enter into, where we can sell the fuels that we produce for commodity values and also participate in the low carbon fuel program and generate and sell credits. And when we do the math, um, our our numbers show that we can be viable in these markets, which is a good thing because. They're really set to spread and, and to tighten as well. So we expect price escalation in the markets that are already there, and we expect more jurisdictions to, to follow suit over time. Earlier on during the Globe Conference, the, the former president of Mexico, uh, Felipe Calderon, he had actually mentioned during uh, one of the opening remarks that incentives, business incentives, are going to be one of the key factors to get action going on. You brought this up as well, and you pointed to BC, pointed to California, do you think, you know, that there's kind of a, a balance that some jurisdictions are going to have to find between these business incentives and just, you know, what the market's going to demand? Where do business incentives fit in for maybe what you guys are pursuing as well, just from like a, a pure business model for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's important to try to, to try to draw a distinction between incentives which really are often needed and often very useful for businesses that are trying to enter the marketplace uh, and then draw a distinction between those and then regulations that are more intended to to exist in perpetuity which is Mm. and and the systems that i was just describing around low carbon fuels fall into the latter so let's take you know let's let's take a couple of examples to, to to illustrate here um Incentives really are helpful. I mean, let me say as, you know, an employee of, of a company that's been in existence in, for, for 10 years now and is still, um, you know, working towards commercialization, working towards going mainstream, it's very difficult in the energy world. It takes a lot of engineering, a lot of investment, um, just a lot of nuts and bolts kind of work. And so, you know, we have received non-dilutive government funding in the past we've received business incentives they've been super helpful on our trajectory and you know hopefully we pay off uh you know in terms of benefits of job creation and of you know cementing this expertise and this industry in canada um and are and are worth those incentives that we've received in the past these markets that we're now trying to enter these are more meant to be um, sort of level playing field, perpetual, transparent markets. Um, and they're more meant to follow in the footsteps of regulations that say were implemented to demand seat belts in cars mm. or demand catalytic converters. Um, I mean, you can bet the car companies wouldn't put precious metals into catalytic converters and put them in cars voluntarily if there wasn't something on the books that said they had to do that. So those regulations are never going away. Similarly, we would hope that the kind of low carbon fuel regulations that BC and California have put into place to create these markets will never go away because these are really what are going to be essential 
to driving deep emissions cuts and to transitioning our economies into clean fuels and into clean energy. You also bring up a very good point about just maybe regulatory frameworks that would give businesses a lot more assurance about where any given jurisdiction is going, what their intentions are going to be. And also makes me think of, say, the Paris Agreement, where we had a lot of, uh, you know, governments sign up, uh, pretty much every government in the world, except for maybe uh, a notable exception here or there. And I'm wondering, though, you know, is this giving a lot of the industry hope or or some disappointments cropping up as maybe some countries or, you know, some uh, of the countries included here maybe don't look poised to hit their targets? And you're wondering, well, hey, look, there's some obvious solutions here. What's going on when, you know, we do have these mandates going forward from various levels of government? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, lots to chew on there. I think, I mean, the Paris Agreement... You know, showing that level of unanimity worldwide um, is incredible. And I think getting everybody signed on to ambitious targets like that is incredible. But as you kind of point out, now the hard work begins. You know, what does each comp- country do at its national level? What What is it? What specific actionable policies and measures can it take to actually start to meet that target? That's That's definitely the hard work. But Um, There's a lot to be hopeful about. I mean, every year is a banner year for, you know, new technologies related to reducing emissions, uh, to new markets to help incentivize emissions reductions. Um, We're we're going in the right direction. We're building momentum. Um, But as you point out, it's going to happen in fits and starts. There's going to be setbacks. And I think, you know, speaking from the perspective of a technology developer and a technology proponent like ourselves you know if i kind of have any hope and dream for for what we can contribute to this mix it's 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 a of course you know a technical solution that helps solve the problem but b you know it's inspiration that it is solvable and that if we just keep pushing at it we're 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 going to get to where we need to go you pointed out that you guys have been having success being based in this jurisdiction as well what are some of the challenges, though, that uh, you know persist? Maybe not just for you, but maybe for the industry as a whole. I, I am curious about what are some of the stumbling blocks ahead. Um, well, I think I think Tyler, it, it does come down to just sort of the changing market environment that that we need to have have happen. So, you know, we've seen big success stories in you know in the form of solar and wind uh, becoming the the cheapest sources of electricity on the planet in the right location we've seen tons of innovations in you know other 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 sectors that are going to help to cut emissions um but there are still ways we need continued evolution in our policies and in our markets to drive deep emissions reductions i mean like like i was saying we've got low carbon fuel standards in bc and in california but we don't yet have those. Well, and I and I should point out credit where it's due. The the Canadian federal government is is in rulemaking right now for mm-hmm. a system that would look similar at the the national level. So, hats off to them for that. It's going to be wonderful. Um, but there are still jurisdictions that don't have these mandates or don't have these these programs, and and so we need them to continue to spread, continue to tighten, and then we need stability. Uh, to draw in the kind of investment that is going to be required uh, to pay for this to pay for this transition. 
Before I let you go, Jeff, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I hear a rumor, though, that uh, you guys do have the backing of one very notable name in technology. Tell us a little bit about kind of the interest and what it means for the company that, say, somebody like Bill Gates is, you know, uh, you know putting their, uh, throwing their hat in the ring for you guys here. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, Bill has been our largest uh, private investor um, since the very first round when the company was, was founded. Um, that's been incredibly helpful to have that kind of patient capital there that you know has given us the the, the leash uh, and the latitude to, to go after a really important problem um, and one you know now looking back at our nine years of company trajectory was was never set to pay off uh, financially in spades right away but was rather going to take a lot of hard work to get to the point where this could both make a meaningful impact on the problem and also start to pay off financially. And to put it simply, we wouldn't have the privilege to go after such a meaningful um, problem and, 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 and be this ambitious if it wasn't for that patient capital. So he and our, our other investors, um, featuring Murray Edwards from, from the Alberta industry as well, um, you know, again, big, big thanks to them. Excellent. Jeff, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure, Tyler. Thank you. That's Jeff Holmes. He is manager of business development at Carbon Engineering, and you're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. And this podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Maybe give us five stars on iTunes. It helps more people find us. And I appreciate everyone tuning in to the Business in Vancouver podcast. We'll be back next time.